Welcome to Anti-Visions. I'm your host, Eric Wimberly. Welcome, friends. I want to welcome all of you who joined me last week, and I'd also like to welcome all of those joining in for the first time. Thank you for listening. Well, today we're going to take a journey to Wonderland. Like Alice, we are going to follow the white rabbit and see how deep the rabbit hole goes as I examine the ideologies behind the current war of words. As I said last week, I have no intention of propagating political positions. My real interest is to evaluate the thought systems behind the rhetoric. There is a whole new vernacular that has taken our nation by storm, overnight, and a whole lot of confusion about that vernacular as well. Communication as it is at an all-time low, while noise is at an all-time high. Words are being thrown around like social justice, systemic racism, white privilege, and anti-racist, for instance. However, not everyone means the same thing. But on the one hand, it seems that some people are just fine with bobbing along with no real concern for the meaning of the words. Or maybe they don't even realize that there are different meanings. But most likely, they don't think there is any real consequence. It's just semantics. Ignorance is excusable to an extent, but intentional ignorance is like Cypher in the movie The Matrix, wanting the red pill instead, because ignorance is bliss. The reality is that these words conjure up highly complex and nuanced debates that can be neither resolved nor communicated in 144-character Twitter debates. Although, don't let public perception fool you. I believe that there are many Americans who genuinely want to understand what's being said. They are genuinely fed up with the political circus. But they are also reticent to embrace something that sounds good, yet militantly demands their endorsement, submission, and devotion. Most people realize that they better not public publicly question simple phrases like anti-racist or systemic racism. But how can anyone grow in understanding if they can't question the ideas behind the words? For instance... Saying that you aren't convinced that systemic racism exists is not the same thing as saying that racism does not exist, if you're coming from a traditional perspective, by which I mean the average modern Western classical liberal type of perspective, which was relatively in vogue until, oh, I don't, I don't know, yesterday maybe? Now, to be clear from what I can tell, when people say that they don't believe systemic racism exists, they say that because they don't agree with the new, mainstream, or dare I say, in vogue meaning of the word. This is prevalent in church culture because the church has developed its own mild definition of systemic racism that does not correspond to Robin D'Angelo's definition. D'Angelo is the author of the wildly popular book, White Fragility. And I would say that D'Angelo's definition by popular vote has become the orthodox definition. This means that traditional 
and or milder versions are sort of like heresies. And we all know what that means. Excommunication. However, those who question systemic racism will automatically be branded a racist and a bigot who doesn't deserve to be heard, only mocked and assailed. Even now, the fact that I am throwing these terms around without explaining myself is dangerous because you don't really know where I stand on these issues. But I believe that because people are now afraid to question or challenge certain ideas publicly, our entire society and way of life will change swiftly and tremendously regardless of their stance on what it means. Think of it like coding. America is a system of ideas or code, like computer code. In some ways, it is an operating system like iOS or Windows or Droid with its own programming and set of rules. Fear is not part of our operating system. I'm talking about America's operating system. And once we introduce it, it's like a virus that causes malfunction and consequently the temptation to embrace an entirely different operating system which will produce radically different outcomes. In the American operating system, people should be free to express themselves regardless of what anyone else believes without fear of reprisal. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, said it like this, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. A recent article published in The Hill, written by Bernard Goldberg, says, Open quote. Just because we still have free speech rights doesn't mean we feel free to exercise these rights, to say what's on our minds. What if we're afraid to voice our opinions? Are we still free then? Which brings us to a new study by the Cato Institute. Let's start with this, about how a majority of Americans are so afraid of what could happen to them if they express an unpopular opinion. Nearly two out of every three Americans, that's 62%, say the political climate these days prevents them from saying things they believe, because they're worried that others might find their opinions offensive. Strong liberals stand out, however, as the only political group who feel they can express themselves. Nearly six in ten, that's 58%, of staunch liberals feel they can say what they believe. However, centrist liberals feel differently. A slim majority, 52% of liberals feel they have to self-censor, as do 64% of moderates and 77% of conservatives. Close quote. It is this climate that I seek to address by evaluating the assumptions behind the rhetoric. You see, not everyone means the same thing by the words I already mentioned. My goal is not to tell you what I think either, although my opinions will obviously flavor this discussion. Rather, my goal is to talk about what the mainstream leaders of the social justice movement believe these words mean. What we are talking about are the ideologies behind the rhetoric, and these ideologies are driven by visions of the world which could also be thought of as gut assumptions and beliefs.
What I'd like to do is to look at what the current world influencers mean by their rhetoric and why they define the terms accordingly. The main person that I will focus on for right now is Robin D'Angelo, the author of that book that I mentioned earlier, White Fragility. The world is talking about her book, whether in Silicon Valley, in corporate America, in faculty meetings, or in churches. In essence, her ideas are worth talking about because she represents an entire movement with legitimate authority. She is not just a lone wolf out there peddling the latest ideological fad. We all view the world through certain paradigms, whether we realize it or not. It's the filter that colors all that we see in the same way that I wear contacts, and the majority of the time, I am not even consciously aware of them. Yet they are the filter through which I see the world at all times. These assumptions that we have form our vision of the world, and even more importantly, our vision of humanity. I will discuss in these next moments how the vision that D'Angelo has of the world is through the paradigm of postmodern philosophy, also known as critical theory. How do I know this? Well, I know this because A, her writings are consistent with postmodern critical theory, and B, because she says so herself. You might ask, what does this matter? Well, it matters because you might find that you disagree with her worldview, or on the other hand, you may realize that you actually do agree with her. Either way, the lights may go on for you. It matters because once we understand her worldview, then we will understand the implications of what she means by the words that we might very well misunderstand otherwise. Make no mistake, I don't think she is hiding anything from us. She tells us plainly what she thinks. But postmodernism is like a language in itself, and if we don't understand that language, then we will not hear what she is saying. And then we will swallow her assumptions whole without even realizing it. Think about assumptions like this. When I have a headache, I usually bust out the Tylenol bottle and two extra strength pills. I assume that they are indeed what they say they are. I'm assuming that it's the correct formulation of the right compounds and chemicals that are going to change my body chemistry so that I can get rid of the headache without causing too much damage to my body at the same time. I just make that assumption. But for all I know, it could be counterfeit Tylenol. It could even be laced with poison. What I'm getting at is that I believe that currently there is charged language that's being used and on the outside, it looks really good and the rhetoric sounds really good. But if you just dig just below the surface and read the actual contents, then we just might understand why there are effects that don't correspond to the label. Jesus said it like this, you can tell a tree by its fruit. The words are the trees. The outcomes are the fruit. The visions behind the words are the roots. In other words, a different root will produce different fruit, regardless of how identical the trees may appear. I call the assumptions that we hold visions, but in D'Angelo's language, she calls them theories. She agrees with me in saying, that it is so important to examine these theories or visions. 
in her book, Is Everyone Really Equal?, which she co-authored with Oslam Sensoy, D'Angelo says, open quote, Many people outside of academia find theory uninteresting. Theory often seems unnecessarily dense and abstract, far removed from our everyday lives. But in fact, all of us operate from theory. Whenever we ask how or why about anything, we are engaged in theorizing. Theory can be conceptualized as the learned cultural maps we follow to navigate and make sense of our lives and new things we encounter. Everything we do in the world, our actions, is guided by a worldview, our theory. Close quote. So without further ado, let me explain the basics of postmodernism by telling it like a story. History, that is. In the 50s, postmodernism emerged out of the school of critical theory, which had formed in the 30s through what was known as the Frankfurt School in Germany. It wasn't like there were a bunch of people that got together and said, hey, let's come up with a new thing and call it postmodernism. There were philosophers who were European university professors that eventually fled to the United States because of World War II, and they started working in many of the different top-tier universities in the U.S., They were devoted Marxists, as a matter of fact, but at that time in history, there was a pervasive disillusionment because of the devastation of World War II. But also, in particular, Marxism had failed because it turned out that Marx was all wrong. Capitalism did not fail. It was flourishing. The proletariat didn't rise up against the bourgeoisie, and all of Marx's predictions didn't come to pass. And in the 50s, the final blow struck when the horrors of communism were finally exposed and the world discovered that 20 million people died at the hands of Lenin and Stalin's Marxist visions. Up until that point, many elites in America, particularly in the universities, still embraced Marxism and socialism as an ideal. They had even seen the Soviet Union as a progressive model society. And then, of course, there was Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in China, where the Red Army swept through, through lands, tearing down every statue, every building, burning every book in the, attempted, in the attempt to purge China of its history by annihilating what they called the Four Olds. Olds, as in O-L-D-S, you know, it's old, old school, which were ideas, number one, culture, number two, customs, number three, and habits, number four. I don't think those are in any particular order. They did this by carrying out widespread destruction of historical sites, relics, statues, book burnings, and the list goes on. To date, Chinese communism has produced 60 million dead bodies. Not exactly the kind of thing that looks good on Marxism's resume. So, back to the postmoderns. I don't know if they became closet Marxists, or if, or if uh, they just forfeited it altogether. But whatever they did, they took that Marxist vision of the world and they transformed it into a whole new system of thinking called continental philosophy, a.k.a. postmodernism, a.k.a. critical theory. 
Basically, critical theory has an evolutionary history. There is no one final version, just, accumul- just an accumulated hybrid offspring, if you will. Postmodernism was built on an all-out assault on modern philosophy, which is the foundation of Western civilization as we know it today. So what better place to start than to attack the very foundation of modern philosophy? And that foundation is reason itself. One way to understand postmodernism is to realize that it defines itself more by what it's not than what it actually is. So let me tell you a little bit about modern philosophy in order to demonstrate that postmodernism is the antithesis. Most of the people who are listening to this podcast are probably more modern in your thinking than you are postmodern in your thinking. First of all, modern thought took shape starting in the 1600s up until the 1800s. You might say, whoa, I thought we were talking about something modern, not ancient. Yeah, it might shock you because we think of modern as current, like when we think of modern architecture, modern decor, or modern art. Some of the big thinkers associated with modern thought are John Locke, and this is going back to the 1600s, Francis Bacon, and Rene Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. At that time, modern thought was very radical. In effect, their philosophies built a foundation upon reason. And this was so radical because for the past 1600 years, Western civilization was built on divine revelation as revealed in the Bible. However, make no mistake, it was, it was not a departure from the Bible that led to this kind of thinking. As a matter of fact, it was the Bible itself that led to it. It had only been a hundred years since the Reformation, led by Martin Luther, which resulted in Protestantism. And up until that point in time, people could not read the Bible for themselves because it was written in Latin, and no one knew Latin other than the priests. But Martin Luther did the unthinkable, and he translated the Bible into German so that the everyday person could read the Bible for themselves. No longer did people have to rely on the priest. They could discover its truths for themselves. In one sense, no longer did they have to rely on revelation because they could use their own reason and understand the truths in the Bible for themselves. The natural result was that people began to realize the power of their own thinking, and they began to realize that there were natural laws that we can study and understand, which means that we can study nature to the glory of God, because He purposely set it up so that we can understand it and explore its truth. So eventually, we end up, we end up with these philosophers who embarked on an attempt to understand the universe or the world around them from the starting point of reason with no need for faith or revelation whatsoever. It's important to grapple with the rationalism and the faith of the, way, of the West because the two are really inseparable. Tom Holland, an agnostic historian in his book Dominion, wrote an incredible account of Western civilization as a completely Christian phenomenon, even, even the aspects that we would imagine to be secular, like classical liberalism, But I digress. 
In studying postmodernism, one can notice that there are two particular things that they, that postmoderns detest about the West. Number one, reason. And number two, Christianity. So let me break postmodernism beliefs down for you. This is a list. It's kind of tough for me just to go through a list because there's so much in it, but I can't unpack it all right now. So think of it, it's more like a table of contents. So first of all, they believe that reason and logic are not universal. They are suspect. That's a big deal. That means that our logic and our reason cannot be trusted. And of course, that's the foundation of our civilization is reason. The, the idea that we can actually understand and know things and we can trust our logic. Even if we know there is a limited extent, we still have a sense of the objective. Postmoderns approached Western thinking with extreme suspicion. And that's actually part of the strategy is to critique, um, meaning to criticize and suspiciously criticize all of the the systems of thinking within Western thought. So the next thing is there is no objective reality. As in, you know, the, the idea of objectivity is that something exists apart from us, whether we like it or not. Okay, so they don't believe that there is an objective reality. And if if there is one, if there were one, they don't believe you could actually know it. Partially because the idea is that uh, everything that we encounter, everything we sense, we taste, touch, feel, smell, all of our senses, these are electrical impulses in our brain. And there's no way for us to step outside of ourselves to actually see if what we're interpreting is, is real. So there is no real in that sense, um, other than what you subjectively experience and determine is real, which means that... There are multiple truths. As a matter of fact, there, there's an infinite amount of truths because every person has their own subjective experience, which is their own reality, but it doesn't, it doesn't bear any correlation to anything that's outside of them. So this is a, a hyper-skeptical perspective. It's, it's kind of where Rene Descartes started from, but he, he concluded, you know, I think, therefore I am, and it, but they're kind of coming at it like as though, you know, if you imagined maybe maybe all I am is a brain in a test tube and someone's just poking my brain and these electrical impulses are causing me to actually believe and think and experience what I'm, you know, what I'm experiencing is life itself right now. Okay, some of y'all might just think I'm crazy, like this is too philosophical, but this stuff really matters. It really impacts society. It impacts um, behavior because these systems of thought are what influence our society. So anyway, back to the point. So they do not believe, they, they believe that language does not refer to a re reality outside of itself. So, you know, like if you use the word tree, you're referring to this thing called a tree, but they don't see language as corresponding to any reality out there. So ultimately, 
all language is a social construct and it's arbitrary. It doesn't really represent anything. So you can see also there's this real meaninglessness, kind of like a nihilistic view, um, actually very much a nihilistic view, which means that there there is no meaning. And, and if there were, you couldn't know what it is anyway. I actually believe that it's impossible to truly be a postmodern, but that's for a whole nother discussion. Um, so they, they look at it and they say there's no general theory of the natural or social world uh, that could be valid or true. So if, if we have a theory of the natural world, which we do, like we have the sciences, and of course we know through science that there are things we thought and then we discover it's not, you know, it's not exactly that way, but we're always growing in knowledge. And we have this theory of, of nature and of the world around us. And they're actually critiquing that. This is not some abstract idea. They're, they are critiquing um, science as we know it. Um, and so, and so even the idea of the social world, it's, it cannot be valid or true, meaning that there is no scientific truth. So maybe a scientist or maybe the the whole body of scientists and all the science that we have up to date, um, can, will claim truths and claim ideas, but they're saying that that is not absolutely true. They're saying that there's, it's not valid, as in it's, it's, it's almost like something you made up. I, I mean, I don't really know how else to put it. It's hard to wrap your head around this, but basically what they're saying is science is not valid, which has some major implications that we're already starting to deal with on the fringes of these culture wars that we're experiencing right now. Um, so they also don't believe that there's historical truth. Meaning that when you read the history books, no matter how good it is, it is not actually true. It is written by the patriarchal powers, by the those that are the dominant ones, which in many ways will be your wasp, your white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, male, and and so the winners get to write history, and they're highly suspicious. So they view all of, all of the historical narratives as really not not a reiteration of what happened, but as a system of control that, um, that is used to make sure that other people can't rise to have the kind of power that the dominant power structure has. I know it sounds almost conspiratorial or just very paranoid, but um, I'm really not able to go in depth enough to, to truly do justice to postmodernism. So, you know, I, I know it kind of sounds crazy and I even chuckle a little bit, but, but there, there is a lot to this thought system. Um, they also believe, um, that they don't believe in science and technology, uh, and even reason and, and logic. They say that they are not vehicles of human progress, but suspect instruments of established power. So reason, logic, technology, science, these are all things that are instruments or used by the established power structure. So something you'll hear from them a lot is um, patriarchalism. 
the patriarch is, you know, kind of like the idea of the man in control, or they view, especially the Bible is the, the, the real source of patriarchalism in their, in their mind, which is ironic because, well, I could go off on that, but I, I believe in many ways, patriarchalism was challenged, uh, uh, by, by Christianity, particularly before the Protestant, uh, Reformation. But anyway, that's a, that's another story. So they, they view uh, society as like this hierarchy and it's mostly male dominated and the people that are in power like i said they are the ones that they're they are establishing control and they're making sure to to keep control okay so whatever it is whether that you can't trust it you can't trust the science books you can't trust the history you can't trust any of it and so you know, eventually this develops into critical theory as we know it today, where it becomes a very uh, kind of like scientific system of tearing everything apart, of criticizing every little thing and finding every little thing wrong so that it could be torn apart. But alas, I get ahead of myself. So they, they also say that there is no such thing as human nature, as in we don't really know what it means to be human. They're not saying that we don't, we're not humans. They're just saying human nature, as in what does human behavior and psychology mean? The idea that what we imagine human behavior as being right or wrong, or even the way that we understand the world, they're saying that's all an arbitrary construction. And at this point, it's really construction that eventually was out of a power struggle. So they still carry the Marxist perspective, which is class struggle, you know, the the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And so they don't use that language. They use the oppressor and the oppressed, but it's still that same worldview. It's that same vision. And so all of life is this power struggle. And because of that, through that power struggle, those power structures have defined reality. And that's why we have these problematic ideas like male and female, you know, just so binary. Um, I, I know I'm sounding a little facetious, but it's really, it's really true. So the idea that there's a God, the idea of logic, the idea of history, the idea of a beginning and an end, these are all logocentric ideas, um, meaning that, that we're relying on logic. Like, like theoretically, if we could go back to the blank canvas, we could have constructed a completely different language and a completely different expression. That's why today it's believed that there are an infinite amount of possible gender identities uh, because, because the reality is that if we could go back to the blank slate, the chances are men and women wouldn't even love each other. We wouldn't have a thing called marriage. I, I mean, we the morality that we have, as in what we believe is right and wrong, they think it's all arbitrary. It's all relative. So you've probably heard of relativism. Well, it comes from postmodernism, but when you get down to the philosophy itself, it's it's far more radically relativistic than probably anything that you've heard in mainstream culture. So... Um, ultimately, everything we know is just a social construct, meaning it's fake. It was, it was made up. It's just created. And it's built through language over time, and it constrains our thinking so that we don't even realize that we're, we think with words, and these words are driving our beliefs. And so in a way, it's like we're slaves, and we don't even realize it. We're locked in a matrix that we perceive as reality, but the only true reality is that 
it's merely an arbitrary system. That's the truth, okay? It's arbitrary, and we don't even realize it. And all the while, it enslaves us. So I am going to share from another quote from uh, D'Angelo and Oslam Sinsoy in, the, in their book, Is Everyone Really Equal? And uh, in particular, I just want to point out, like I said, that she herself says that, that she sees herself in the school of critical theory. The one that I'm just talking about, the postmodernism, all of that is informing what uh, D'Angelo believes, okay? And she represents not just herself, but entire, an entire movement that has so much influence, I actually more than influence in our culture today. And so here's a here's a quote from her just just so you know I'm I'm not making this up. She says this. She says open quote, "Our analysis of social justice is based on a school of thought known as critical theory." Okay? Pause. Now I'm I'm not in the quote anymore. Maybe maybe she's talking about critical theory in a different way than in the postmodern way. You know? Maybe that's not exactly the same thing, okay? So I'm going to unpause, and she goes on to say, open quote, critical theory refers to a body of scholarship that examines how society works and is a tradition that emerged in the early part of the 20th century from a group of scholars at the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. Because of this body of scholarship, because of this, this body of scholarship is sometimes also called the Frankfurt School. These theorists offered an examination and critique of society and engaged with questions about social change. Their work was guided by the belief that society should work toward the ideals of equality and social betterment. Okay, close quote. But then she goes on and she lists some super influential critical theorist names, uh, some of whom that I studied when I was in college. And she goes on to say, open quote, their scholarship, meaning these critical theorists, their scholarship is important because it is part of a body of knowledge that builds on other social scientists' work. And she says, like, and she, she lists off some different people, and one of them is Karl Marx. She says, like Karl Marx's analyses of capitalism and social stratification, and Max Weber's analyses of capitalism and ideology. And then she says, all of these strands of thought built on one, are built on one another. And then she goes on to say, efforts among scholars to understand how society works were not limited to the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School is, is the original, remember, uh, critical theorists. And then she goes on, she says, it wasn't limited. It, it went on to French philosophers, notably Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Pierre Bordeaux, and Jacques Lacan. I studied all of those guys in continental philosophy. They were also grappling with similar questions. This broader European development of critical theory is sometimes called the Continental School. Now, this is D'Angelo talking. She says, it's called the Continental School or Continental Philosophy. Now, another name for Continental Philosophy, I'm pausing, I'm just saying, is postmodern theory. Okay, I'm going back to her quote again. She says, this work 
um, merges in the North American context of the 1960s. And I'm just reading this because I, I want you to hear from her and not just from me what is valued by the critical theorists and the fact that Robin D'Angelo considers herself to be deeply connected to these philosophies. They're informing everything that she's writing. So, so that's what's informing her language. Okay, so she's, she talks, she goes back and she says, um, it, it emerged in the North American context of the 1960s with anti-war, feminist, gay rights, black power, indigenous peoples, the Chicano movement, disability rights, and other movements for social justice. Okay, that is a loaded, loaded, loaded thing that she just said. Okay, but the biggest point that I can make is that it's true to to critical theory because what critical theory does is it goes through whether it's history or it's it's politics, any kind of writing, literature, speech, anything. And what they do is they go through and they look for every single flaw, every single way that it's misogynistic, that it's chauvinistic, that it's racist, that it's homophobic, it's transphobic, it's, you know, I don't even know, disability phobic. Um, And they look for every single possible thing that, that could possibly be wrong, truly. And that is critical theory. But I'll get into that more later. Right now, I'm just trying to focus on the basics. So many of these movements, she goes on to say this, many of these movements, talking about postmodernism, critical theory, initially advocated for a type of liberal humanism. Now, not just critical theory, but critical theory that turned into critical race theory or critical gender theory. So she's talking about these critical theory movements that eventually began to fight for social justice for those that are oppressed. And that all sounds good. I mean, I'm all for, you know, standing for the oppressed, um, but there's something different going on here. So listen to what she says. Those movements initially advocated for a type of liberal humanism. Well, that that sounds good. We're not talking about liberal as in, you know, if you're a conservative, oh, down with the liberals. It's it's more like liberal humanism as in individualism, freedom, peace, those those kind of things. And she goes on in her quote, she says, but they quickly turned to a rejection of liberal humanism. Okay, stop, scratch the record. Wait a minute. What did she say? So the the philosophy that she ascribes to, which is postmodern critical theory, it momentarily was um, supportive and and would advocate for liberal humanism. And that and I think that really comes from the early postmoderns that were far more uh, relativistic, and so they they tended they tended to not be so uh, social activist oriented at all. Um, but anyway, she goes back and she says they they turn they quickly rejected liberal humanism. So they rejected things like individualism, freedom, peace, ultimately classical liberalism, which are, are the ideas of free speech. Now she didn't say this in her quote, but she does say individualism, freedom, and peace. But she says, uh, um, but classical liberalism would be things like the freedom of speech, uh, the the right, you know, that we all have the same rights under the rule of law. Everyone is equal in terms of the rule of law. Everyone has the right to own property. Um, 
these ideas of human rights that we have, that we carry as Americans, that we really value, she's saying that they quickly rejected those. Okay? Now, why? I thought that liberal humanism would be a good thing. You know, you would think it for someone who's fighting for social justice and standing for these things. So she goes on to explain the reason why. Okay. So I'm going to open quotes. She says, the logic of individual autonomy that underlies liberal humanism. So that's the idea that people are free to make independent, rational decisions that determine their own fate. Okay. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out. I'm going to pause here. So she's just basically saying that liberalism had this view that people are individuals and they can make their own decisions and they're actually free and they, they can actually, they're, they're not bound by fate. They can actually determine their own fate. She's saying that that's the logic. And that logic, she goes on, and I quote, was viewed as a mechanism for keeping the marginalized in their place by obscuring larger structural systems of inequality. I know that's a mouthful, but what she's saying is that the critical theorists determined that this whole idea that people are free and that they are individuals and they're autonomous and they could determine their own future and their own fate is actually a lie that was that was propagated by the power structures which would be the patriarchy primarily the white supremacist patri- patriarchy that's driven by, you know, all kind of motivations, religion, power, money, all those kind of things. And they're the ones that have basically created this this idea. And it's it's kind of like the opiate of the masses with Marx, you know, religion's the opiate of the masses. Well, the idea that that you're free and that you're an actually an individual, they in some ways they're saying it's an opiate. You know, it's it's really what it's doing is it's making people think that they're free when they're not. And what it's doing is, like she said, it's designed, it's a mechanism to keep the marginalized in their place. So this is this is very, very, not just skeptical, it's, it's almost paranoid because it, it's almost like a, a, a conspiracy theory. I mean, how can you prove this. You, you really can't prove it. It's kind of like a, a witch hunt, you know, like if if you throw the witch in the water and she sinks, she's a witch. If she floats, she's a witch, you know, so either way, it's a witch. And okay, my opinions are coming out a little too much there, but um, I do have some feelings about that, obviously. So she goes on and she says, in other words, in other words, this liberalism idea fooled people into believing that they had more freedom and choice than societal structures actually allow. So, postmodernism, and I'm out of the quote now, postmodernism and critical theory obsesses over structural systems of inequality. When they use the term systemic racism, It is an allusion to a particular vision of the world that sees the current society, and I mean Western civilization itself, as inherently corrupt. It cannot be redeemed. Instead, it needs to be torn down. I am not saying that the majority of leaders are calling for revolution and social upheaval outright, but what I am saying 
is that the postmodern and critical theory, as in the literature, and that's being propagated everywhere, is designed to disrupt the current power structures, primarily through the weaponization of language. They believe that the more they can disrupt the meta-narrative, and the meta-narrative is the overarching story, in this case, the overarching story of Western civilization. They don't believe in meta-narratives. They believe that there is no such thing. You, you need lots of little narratives. But, but there is to say there's a meta-narrative, like an overarching story, is to say that there's like objective truth or to say that one story is more true or real than another one. And so their goal is to disrupt that meta-narrative especially through the weaponization of language, so that people will begin to see the system for what it is, that it's a lie. Now, I'll be able to explain more in future episodes, but let me help you wrap your head around this with an analogy by using the movie The Matrix. Hopefully you've seen it, but here's a quick synopsis if not. There's a guy named Mr. Anderson who also goes by the hacker alias Neo. He lives a boring life in Chicago in the year 1999. He's a computer programmer who is eventually tracked down by this mysterious network of hackers. Morpheus is the leader of the hackers and he meets with Neo. And Morpheus says to Neo, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? And Neo responds, The Matrix? And Morpheus responds, Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And Neo asks, what truth? Morpheus responds, that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Now, Neo eventually finds out that all of his life he has been hooked up to a neural network of virtual reality along with the rest of humanity. All humans believed that they were really living life as we understand it. But in reality, they lived and died their entire lives in this virtual reality world. The point that Morpheus drives home to Neo is that what we think is real is not real at all. Much like the postmodern view that there is no obje objective reality, there is no capital T truth. Then Morpheus begins to train Neo to be part of his elite team that hacks back into the Matrix to rescue people out. But they can only rescue people who are already searching for the answers to the Matrix. The rest of humanity is senselessly content to never awaken. 
At one point, Morpheus has Neo in a virtual reality training simulation, and he says, The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around. What do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system. And that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. So these words that Morpheus speaks summarize the vision of the postmodern critical theorists. Remarkably, we live in a social construct, they say. It's a social construct that is a system. And that system is the enemy of humanity. That system is as irredeemable as the evil matrix in the movie, which was built for the sole purpose of enslaving people. The goal is to rescue people out of the system by disrupting the system from within. But still, so many people will defend their stubborn Western values because they don't realize that they are truly slaves. The postmodern wants to disrupt the matrix, which is our world as they see it, as much as possible in order to awaken people to realize that the whole thing needs to be overthrown. There is no room for reform. In the movie, notice that when Neo and Morpheus go into the Matrix with their team to rescue people, they don't go in to effect more social justice. They don't go in and try to raise up leaders who can build a better society. To them, that would be like trying to rescue the Titanic by investing in the crew when the whole ship is doomed. Instead, Neo's team goes into the Matrix to rescue people so they can enlist them in their army, and that army is being built so that they can overthrow the whole system because the entire system is corrupt. Because in the Matrix, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you're poor, because everyone is a slave to that system. So when crit- critical theorists like Robin D'Angelo use the word systemic racism, first of all, remember, That critical theory has managed to jockey its way to become the dominant voice in our culture, which means that its definition is orthodoxy, and to disagree with that is actually heresy. And most of all, remember the movie The Matrix, because the goal is revolution. The goal is to overthrow and destroy the whole thing. Like Jacques Rousseau said, man is born free but is everywhere in chains. For them, the goal is to throw off the chains and begin a whole new free world, but most of all, a world of absolute equality. This is the systemic vision of postmodern critical theory. I know. You're probably thinking the same thing that I am. We're not in Wonderland anymore. Wait, wait, that's wrong. the wrong movie. Toto must have chased off that darn white rabbit. But it all feels so real. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.